packed in this city. So here at Neartown on a Sunday morning, we have been in a series called Covenant Questions. These Covenant Questions, we are on week three of four, and we are looking back and saying, okay, humanity has been asking a number of questions since the beginning of time. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And what's my response? And we've been covering all four questions, uh, rather each question, one question a week. So week number one, we said, okay, who is God? So we looked back at the five Old Testament covenants, and we looked at those and said, okay, who did God say that he was? Let's look at these covenants and see who he told us he was. Because the fun part is God actually initiated these covenants. So he was the one coming forward. And so if we read it in the covenants, we're saying this is actually God saying, this is who I am. And we could see very clearly through all of the Old Testament covenants, God wanted us to know that he was a good father. Who is God? God is a good father. And then we move forward. And last week, we were in Psalm 103, and we looked at how David related to God and how David said, well, this is who God is. This is who God is, and because of who he is, this is what he does. Because who God is directly informs all of his actions. And his actions will always flow right from his character. This is how it always works. So God, being the faithful God, then acted in faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. Now these covenants were these agreements of loyalty. And God came to the people of Israel and said, this is what I will do. They had complete expectations and stipulations and understandings. This is what I will do. This is what I expect from you. And then God continued to maintain his end of things while Israel, the other party in the covenant, continued to fail on their end of things. They were unfaithful. God was faithful. And God then continued to offer blessings and pour out his love on Israel. He pursued them and he sent his son to die for them. His son Jesus was the faithful covenant representative. Jesus was faithful when none of us were faithful. Jesus then died for us in our place when we were still unfaithful and he was the faithful covenant representative. Because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we can know him in an intimate and personal way, being rewarded like a faithful covenant partner who gets more of God. That is the goal, to know God and get more of him, to know him in an intimate and personal way. That's what these, the goal of these covenants were. And because of Jesus, we actually get the benefit of being a faithful covenant partner like we were, which we weren't, through Jesus. Uh, being, that's the benefit of the agreement of loyalty. So the answers to who God is and what he has done are magnificently foundational to our next two questions. Who am I and what am I to do? So today we're going to go through the who we are part of the questions we have. By the end, when you walk out, when you get in your car and drive away, I hope that you can answer this a little more fully or feel that you can experience more peace by knowing who you have been made to be in Christ. I hope you can experience more peace by knowing who you have been made to be 
in Christ. Now, we can't answer the question, who am I, without looking back at those first two questions, who is God and what has he done? So join me, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you would like a Bible, if you did not come with a Bible, uh, slip up your hand, and my friend Sarah will come and give you a Bible. If you need one, just put your hand up. Uh, if you didn't have a Bible and she gives you one, now you have a Bible. You can take that with you. It's our gift to you. It's A-OK. Uh, we're glad to be able to, to give these out. It's really good to have the Bible. So go right back to the very beginning in the first few pages, and we'll start at Genesis 1. This is the beginning of God's interactions with human because he created them. This is actually the first covenant. Now, it actually starts, when we ask the question, who is God and what has he done? We don't just start at creation because God intended to make us this way. It is based on his character. He existed before creation. So it's set squarely on his shoulders. So who is he? Well, he was this good God. He was a good father. And the good father, what did he do? He created. So the good father created. Out of his character, he acted. And what he makes is good. God makes good. Now, it's not like God makes things real good and stuff, but it's God makes good things because out of him, And out of his good character, that's what he does. And he makes good things. And so when he looked at creation, he said, this is good. This is good. But when he made humans, he said, this is very good. We were made in his character. We were made in his image. We were made in his likeness. So in chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, and Uh, Chapter 2, verses 16b, this is what it says. We were set apart from all creation. We were made in his image. We were made in his likeness. We were given this charge through the first covenant to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion over all creation and the freedom to eat from every tree in the garden, save one. God had made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had commanded them Don't eat from it. We all have our roots. All of humanity, come back here. All of humanity starts there. Now, we're going to hit pause on this part of the story. Join me in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. In Galatians, Paul is writing to the people of Galatia, and these type of people are called Gentiles at the time. Now, to be a Gentile or of the nations means you had no heritage or history in Israel. You did not have any affiliation with the Jewish God or the Jewish religion. Paul has previously come to this country, and he has shared the good news about Jesus, and the people listened to him. And they said, we need this. This is good. I'm glad. And so they accept it. Well, Paul leaves, and in his trail comes a new set of people into this town. And they tell the Galatians different things. And they tell them lies. And the Galatians start to believe these new people about what Christianity is, quote-unquote, supposed to be like. So Paul writes this letter to them to say, no, no, no. I want to call you back to the true gospel, to the truth. And I want you to know what is true and what is good and what is the filthy lie that you have been hearing. 
So when we read this, this is a corrective against uh, many lies that these people were hearing. Now, look with me at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. When Paul says that they were held captive under the law, see, he isn't referring to the Mosaic law. Many times in scripture, when you come across something and they talk about being held captive under the law, for the most part, it's talking about the Mosaic law. It's the one that Moses came down, 10 commandments, Charlton Heston holding them up, looking awesome. That's what we're familiar with. That's the image that we get. When Paul says this, he's not referring to that because this is not a Jewish audience. These are Gentiles. So what common law could Paul be referring to that covers the Gentiles? Okay, let's go back to the creation story. God made a simple covenant in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Be fruitful, have dominion, don't eat from that tree. Eat from everything, don't eat from that tree. Things were rosy, and that intimate and personal relationship that the covenant enables us to have with God, they had it. And they had it for an undetermined amount of time. We don't know how much time passed from Adam and Eve, you have life, here's the covenant, to Genesis chapter 3. We don't know how long that is. They had a great relationship, but insert chapter 3. Satan comes on the screen. Uh, So we have here Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is what Satan says to the woman. Did God actually say not to eat from any tree of the garden? Did God actually say? See, Satan comes on and he's now trying to get Eve to question God's word. Did he, did he actually say that? It's almost as if, like, I hear it in my mind, Satan's coming forward and it's like, okay, well, God's the man and I want to stick it to him. So, how can we stick it to the man? Did he actually say that? He seems, he seems like an authoritarian who's just really bent on control. He has, the way he asks, like, has this underlying feel of why. Did God actually say that? So Eve answers Satan's question, and she says, well, yeah, God, he said, don't eat from this tree, and if you do, you'll surely die. Well, Satan didn't leave it at that. He digs in further. Look at verse 4. Certain said to to the woman, you will not surely die. No. No, things are fine. Okay, so it's not just luring Eve now to questioning God's word. Satan has just flat out called God a liar. He has set up Adam, and let me make this clear, he has set up Adam and Eve both to question God and see him as an uh, overbearing overlord who is intent on lying to his people to continue to have control. And I'm saying Adam and Eve because this was not just Eve's failure. It talks about this conversation between Adam and Eve. Adam was very much complicit. Adam was right there. Humanity fell that day, not femininity. So if you've heard that, knock it off. All of humanity was right there. Satan has now said, okay, God's the lying overlord. And then he continues on in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For God knows, 
you will be like God. Satan has now laid it out to say, he isn't just a lying overlord, he's manipulative. God is manipulative. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. In fact, he's trying to keep stuff from you. So when Satan gets there and tempts them, this is not about fruit. When you look back at the story of creation, please don't read this as this is talking about fruit and their sin was about eating the wrong fruit. The sin was the choice to say, you know what? God is a lying overlord who is manipulating us. All we need to do is take our rightful spot and we're going to eat that fruit. We are going to be like God. We are going to take our place next to God. We can claim divinity. We can be like God. Here's the worst part. Satan uses against them the thought that if they know good and evil, they will be like God. He just said at the covenant, he made them in his image. He made them in his likeness. They were already like God. But they weren't God. They weren't on par. But Satan said, oh, do you have enough? Why don't you just try to usurp the throne today? And they took it. They took the bait They thought they were the top dogs and they ate the fruit to knock God out of his rightful place. So humanity, humanity in Adam and Eve rejected the covenant. See, they were unfaithful to the covenant and sin entered this perfect world. The effects of this rebellion, it's not just that they had to get kicked out of the garden. All of humanity was broken forever. All of humanity was broken forever. And you might say, okay, well, how? We're all walking around breathing pretty good. Okay, allow me to show you. See if this sounds familiar. Um, if you've picked up anything, I like to doodle. And sometimes others like to you know, process with me. So we have here the human. God has made the human. But God made the human, so the human was in relationship to God. There was a free-flowing relationship. There was a mutual uh, respect and love, but the human could communicate to God and could know him. Beyond just the human, the human had it with earth. The earth wasn't the enemy. The earth was the thing that provided food, and it did so freely. Beyond just the earth, the human. So this is kind of a funny thing, but... Adam knew what he was thinking. Adam knew what he was feeling. Adam had a consistency in thought and emotion. And beyond the relationship with self, there's the relationship with another human. So Adam and Eve had good communication. They believed the best in each other. They trusted one another. Well, sin entered the world. Add sin, what happens? All of these ways of relating to these four ways, the four ways of relating to God, to self, to earth, and to other humans, they were broken. Doubt entered the fray. Now, as a human, does God God exist? Does he love me? Does he want the best for me? I don't know if I really know God. Okay, brokenness of relationship. Brokenness in the relationship with yourself. You can leave that slide up. 
that brokenness with yourself. I mean, have you ever had the, the thought, man, I'm feeling good today? Or am I? Oh, no. No, I'm angry. Or am I? And you kind of, like, you have self-doubt. You, you wonder about yourself. You worry about yourself. You're not sure what you're feeling or thinking. That relationship, even in your own headspace, is busted. The relationship to the earth, as we sit here fanning our faces because the air conditioning has broke, we say we've got to work hard to be comfortable in this life, to make the ground give us forth the food that we need to eat. Working is hard. And then our relationship to one another. I mean, I've been doing some premarital counseling lately, and I cannot believe how many times I'm saying, so, so the key to marriage is good communication. And the reason you don't get into fights is because good communication. And the reason that you're going to have good intimacy with each other is, is good communication. And I find myself repeating it frequently because the nature of good relationships is trust. And it broke. It broke. We don't trust one another. We have to work for it. See, it's infected every single part of our world. This brokenness and this dysfunction came to all of humanity It started there, and it went worldwide from there, through all of time. And if if this extensive brokenness wasn't enough, or again, who are we? Well, we're broken, we're busted. James says in his book, James, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4, that if in this broken world we have sided with the world and not with God, if we say, you know what, things are fine, it's just not that bad, it's pretty good here on this earth. I don't need God. I don't need God. I can be a good person without religion. Uh, I'm golden. If we make a statement such as that, if we feel that beyond being busted and broken, it says we are enemies of God. An enemy of God. We are enemies. We are broken. We are busted. We are rebellious. And we are enemies. That is not a really good way to answer who you really are. But frankly, that's our status from the beginning of creation. That's where we are. Now, go back to Galatians chapter 3, looking at verse 23 and 24. See, Paul's writing about this exact state of despondency when he says that we were held captive in verse 23, held captive under the law, and we were imprisoned. In verse 24, the law was our guardian, We were all locked up in this. We were stuck, broken, busted, rebels. Paul is keying in on the answer to this question, who am I or who are we when he refers to our captivity under the law? So let's look back at those questions. Who is God? Well, what has he shown himself to be? He is the creator. He is the good father. He is loving. He is kind. Well, what does he do? Out of his character, he creates. He creates good. He is still loving. He is still kind. And he pursues his people out of his faithful, loving kindness. Who are we? We are created in his image. We are created in his likeness. We are loved. We are pursued. We are his. This hasn't changed. At the same time, We are also rebels. We are broken. We are needy. We are busted through and through. We are enemies. 
And like verse 24 shows us, we're captives. Every one of us are under the guardianship of this law. We all see the proof of this all around us. Even if we don't want to come to grips with it for our own life, we see it all around us. And so we have to say, okay, maybe this is part of my identity. Maybe I am broken. This is the human condition. This is the plight of everybody. But once Jesus came, he altered the path for all time. As I said at the open, his death and resurrection opened a new way for us to be made right with God. See, in Christ, this is phrase, in Christ, we have the opportunity to have our identities rewritten. We have a chance to have our identities rewritten. And this is kind of the pinnacle of what we're talking about today. So with, with Jesus, there is a massive change. Without Jesus, we're in this broken state. We're going to sit in rebellion to the king. This is where we are stuck. Without Jesus, this is where we are. Now, I do want to take a, a very small sidestep. Uh, it seems I've heard from a lot of people when this topic of uh, human brokenness and how screwed up we are uh, is very quick. People are like, well, humans still have a ton of talents. They make wonderful art. You don't have to be a Christian to be nice to people. So I think humans are fine. Humanism is great. Why are you devaluing what humans can be? Humans are wonderful. And to that I say, you are correct. Humans are fantastic. We have been made in the image of God and we are living out of that image that he has given us. But that still doesn't answer the question of our brokenness. Again, you can be broken in those four ways and still be nice to people. That doesn't fix your relationship with God, with yourself, with others, with earth. It's still broken. God has an answer to humanism. In Christ, through faith in him, belief in him, trust in him, our identities get the overhaul that we've been seeking. Now, if you want to look up at this graphic, we start always with who is God and what has he done. Go to the next one. In um, the, these two inform that third circle. So if you want to go to the one with the small circles, these two are always going to inform the answer to the next part. Who am I? These are constant. So when Jesus has come, he has now given us two options. We have to at least wrestle with Christ. Do we want to stay up at the top, not in Christ? This is who I am. I'm okay with it. Rebellion to God doesn't seem that bad. Or do I want to pick a new life? Well, we've already talked about what it is to be not in Christ. We've heard our state of brokenness. What does it mean to be in Christ? In Christ. Let's look at verse 24 and 25. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came. Christ is now altering the entire course of everything in order that we might be justified by faith. We're justified. 
We have right standing with God because Christ has given us that. God looks at Jesus and sees his righteousness that he lived with. And because he died in perfection, rose from the dead, he has given us, the big word is imputed, he has put that on our ledger line, and God looks at us and says, you are righteous because he is righteous. He has given us his righteousness. So when we get to heaven, God looks at us, sees Jesus, and says, that's fine. Uh, there is a comedian, the late comedian Mitch Hedberg. He has this bit. He says, it would be cool if a good food could go with a bad food, and it would cover the bad food when it got to your stomach. Like you could eat a carrot and an onion ring, and they go down together. And then when they get there, the carrot says, it's okay. He's with me. In Christ, God looks at our onion ring status and sees Jesus' carrot quality. Our entire identity has been changed. So, okay, follow me through the rest of this text, and I want to point out the ways that our identity in Christ has changed. So, verse 24, we notice that it says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, we've already hit on being justified by faith, trusting in Christ, and receiving his righteousness, not earning it, receiving it, Verse 25, but now that faith has come, now that the ability to believe in Jesus through faith, not by earning, but by belief, we are no longer under a guardian. We are free. In Christ, we are free. Before we were trapped in Christ, you have been set free. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus You are all sons of God through faith. That is collective sons and daughters. You are all children of God through faith. And there's something I want to point out here. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Again, what's the opposite? You were not children of God. You were enemies. Imagine this, if you will, uh, in terms of like a castle or a royal setting. We were enemies. We were outside the castle walls. We were being fired upon. And frankly, we were trying to take the castle. And it wasn't going well for us. In Christ, he has come out to us. He has moved us from the battle lines and he has taken us inside the throne room. We were trying to get there in the first place and we couldn't even get inside the walls. And God said, you know what? I'm going to give you some new clothes. I'm going to make you look like me. Welcome to the royalty. You are now my sons and daughters. Welcome to the throne room. Uh, Megan and I, early in our marriage, we went to go see um, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe with some friends in the theater. And when it got to the part at the end where all four of the Pevensey children are sitting on the throne. And they all take their royal seat. I remember looking over at my friend Andrew. um, I call him Rosh. And I said, I looked over at Rosh, and there were tears streaming down his face. And he said afterwards, he's like, that's us. In Christ, we have that privilege. 
we have that privilege. We are now children of God to sit on the throne with him. Verse 27. For as, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's two thoughts here. Uh, baptism, note, baptism is not something you do to earn salvation. That's not how it comes across in this passage, and it's not how it comes across in many other passages. We here at Neartown absolutely believe that if you have believed in Christ and put faith in Christ, then you are baptized. baptized does, being baptized does not earn you salvation. It is not the thing that you're, God's waiting up there with a checkbox and goes, uh, didn't get baptized. Out. No, this is a sign of obedience. Christ has asked us to be baptized, and beyond asking us to be baptized, baptism is our way to tell the community of Christians, I'm one of you. I'm in. It's a declaration of your faith. That's what baptism is. It's a declaration of your faith. So for those of you who are my friends, and I love you very much, who've only been sprinkled as children, I would love to have that conversation of what does it look like for you to be baptized now after belief? after belief, to say, yep, I'm in. I would love to have that conversation. But here, Paul is speaking to people who are Christians. The natural assumption is, if you are Christian, you are wanting to be baptized, and if you are baptized, you have put on Christ. I am a Christian. Russell talked this a few weeks ago about saying, okay, I am going to put on Christ. I'm going to put on these new clothes. I am not going to live as the child who was trapped and captive and busted and broken. I choose to live a new life. Next week, we're going to be talking about what we do, what we are to do in light of who we are. I know it's July 4th weekend, but if you're in town, I would love to see you here. We'll cap off this series talking about the what do we do now. But that's next week. So, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus on this earth. We all like the things, like the boxes that we understand, that we can kind of put people in. Okay, well, you're a Jew, and and you're a Gentile. Oh, well, you're male, and you're female, and we really like these things. It helps us get through life. It helps us understand things. And sometimes those things get whacked out of proportion. And we say, oh, I am a male. I am a male. I'm going to talk about what it means to be male. I'm going to find all of my identity in my maleness. And Paul is saying, these things, these things that used to be the very first thing that you claimed, the biggest thing that you were going to fight about and fight over, it's now not the biggest thing. You are one in Christ. That is who your identity is in. That is your chief marker of identity. I am his I am his. That is what I am most excited about, being a child of God's. And based on that identity, my actions will come, and not these other things that we used to fight about all the time. God has certainly made us male and female. That is certainly in his intent from creation, but that is not where I am going to spend my time fighting. I am going to claim Christ, and I am going to move forward in him. What does life look like being sent by him? Verse 29. Actually, verse 28, the other thing is uh, you are all one in Christ. One is not just 
oh, you have a new identity, but it's this communal family feel. You are now in this family. You are one in Christ. There are others who are in Christ. This in Christ is almost like, okay, it's this big circle of people, and you've gone from that side of the circle, and now you are in Christ. You are one. There are brothers and sisters. You are part of a big family with a good father. And now your brothers and your sisters, they're on your team. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, again, if you're his, and you've come to him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We've been talking about covenants for the past two weeks, and this week we've talked about Adam's covenant with God. Well, Abraham made a covenant with God, and that promise was for land. And there was these promises that people thought that were only to Jews, and were only available to Jews. And Jesus came, and he said, I have fulfilled all of the covenants, and through me, through faith in me, you will receive all of the promises of the covenant. In Christ, we receive all of those promises. And because of that, it's as if we were Abraham's children. We receive the covenants as if we were his faithful descendants because Abraham believed, he had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as it says in Hebrews. He had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Actually, that's Paul in Romans, sorry. Um, and we come to him in faith, in faith in God, and God gives us all those promises he made to Abraham. And, and Paul's coming to us here and saying, you're Abraham's offspring. It's available to you. That which was not your identity is now available to you. And lastly, we are his heirs. Again, that image of being outside the castle walls, being brought into the throne room, we are actually given status as children who are to be essentially next in line of royalty to receive the blessing of being children of the king. This is nutso, okay? This is insane that through Christ we are made heirs. This is who we are. And this is my major point that I want us to come away with as we are reflecting on these things. As we're talking about identity, this is not something you can swap, Okay, so uh, yes, you can legally change your name. You can change your location. You can change your friends, and through a massive amount of surgery, you can change all the ways you look. You can't change who your birth parents are. That will always be in your identity. That's always going to be a lock. And so when we talk about identity in this way, when we were previously outside of Christ, our identity was one where it was broken and busted. And in Christ, our identity is that of people who are free, who are heirs to the throne. This is something that has been given and it is permanent. Our identity as people who are free is permanent. You do not have to earn this. If I could say this a thousand times as you carry about your day, this is not something you have to earn. You don't have to play your own moral police and feel that God doesn't love you because you did one or two or three things wrong or 3,000 things wrong. If you have come to Christ and have placed your faith in him and are seeing him as Lord, you are free, you are loved, and your place is secure in him. I tell my kids this frequently. 
There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. I tell that to you, right, Emmy? Uh huh. Because <laughs> I want to tell them there is nothing that they can do to make me love them more, and there's nothing that they can do to make me love them less. And God comes to us and He says the same thing in Christ. I love you, and I have paid the price for you. Your identity is secure in me. So who is God? God is the loving and good Father. What does he do? He's loved us so much that he has sent his Son to pay for our sin, to give us righteousness, and create a way for us to know him in an intimate and personal way. Who are we? We're created in his likeness, in his image. We were made wonderful, but through sin, we chose the wrong path. We were broken and we are busted, but, but in Christ, in Christ, we are set free. We are justified We are his. We are heirs to the throne of God. Who we are in Christ is more than we could ever hope and imagine. And I hope that as we leave today, that we can say, I actually can experience peace with you, God, because you have taken from me the ability to be made whole. You have given me the ability to be made whole. You have removed every obstacle and I can experience peace in you because of what you have done. Now, as Matt comes back up here, I want us to reflect on these truths. See, Paul wanted to encourage those Galatians that they didn't have to earn God's favor. There was nothing that they could do to their bodies and their actions to say, okay, God, I need you to love me now because I've done all of these things. Paul wanted to remind them. In him, it was grace and grace alone that he gave to us. And in him, we have life. Bow your heads with me. Lord, you have paved the way for us to know you. Not in an intellectual, not in a factual sort of way, but in an intimate and personal way. We have a relationship with you. And through Jesus, Father, you've made a way for us to be whole, to be free to not stay in a state of brokenness, but to be walking a path through Christ to continued wholeness, both realized at present, more fully realized later, and daily changing so that we can be in your image. Spirit, I ask that you move in this room For the hearts, Lord, that are broken, who are stuck without you, warm them to your name. 
let us see that life in you is a good life. It's a whole life. And Lord, those of us who are in you, who have been beating ourselves up by our actions, by our fleshy desires, by the things that keep tripping us up, Lord, let us not find our identity in the things that we do, but in who we are. You have freed us. You have made us whole. We are yours. Thank you, Lord, for paying this price. Jesus, you are good. In your name we pray, amen.